If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. And uh, I've been meaning to mention also, if you get here some morning and find that you don't have a Bible or just need one, we usually keep some on this table right as you come into the room. You're welcome to grab one of those and use it this morning. You can even take one of those with you as a gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 through 8 this morning, and uh, I want to start uh, by asking you, how many of you saw the game, the Aggie game, last night? All right. Great game. Uh, as I watch the Aggies each week, I am always impressed and reminded of the power of what I think is our greatest tradition at A&M, which is the 12th man. Uh, everybody probably knows the story of the 12th man, but just in case we have some tea sips or something in the room, uh, let me uh, refresh your memory. Uh, 1922, when the Aggies were playing Center College, they were uh, struggling to come up with a victory, and uh, they were losing a lot of players to injury. Uh, and so the coach, Dana Bible, looked up into the stands, and there he saw E. King Gill uh, helping some reporters spot different players on the sidelines so they could get their stories right. And E. King Gill was a guy who had played football the previous year, but had left the football team to go and focus on basketball. Uh, But they were running out of players, so Coach Bible looked up and said, can you come down here, suit up, and be ready just in case we need another guy? So uh, Gil came down, he suited up. He didn't end up playing in the game, but he stood on the sidelines for the rest of the game and, in fact, was the last player remaining on the sideline when the game ended. And uh, ever since then, of course, Aggies stand at the games uh, in show of support of their team. And the imagery here is that you and I, at any moment, are ready to be called into action to play should the coach turn around and say, I need you, come in, right? We're standing there, ready to go. I love the tradition. However, I have some bad news for you. You will never be called into that game. Okay? I don't care how many weeks you stand there and how ready you feel, you will never be called in. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, this isn't 1922 anymore, and uh, we've got some more depth on the roster uh, than they did in 1922. They also don't just kind of throw players in there and sacrifice them like lambs to the slaughter. So injuries happen a little less frequently. But the primary reason that you will not get in the game and I will not get in the game is because we are not ready. We haven't prepared. You and I have not been practicing with the team. Uh, We don't know the plays. No matter uh, what kind of shape you are in, there are a lot of people they are going to call on before they look up in the stands and go, "Uh, you, Bob, you look like you could play. Come on down, suit up. That's not going to happen. So if you're resting your dreams of football glory on that moment, your life will be a sore disappointment. You're not ready. Now, the reason I share that is because I think a lot of us in our Christian life, we sort of stand on the sidelines of the game and we wait to be called in for a big moment. We wait for that moment when God's going to say, hey, you, uh, come on into the game. This is your moment where your coworker is going to ask you to testify boldly to the gospel or to defend the deity of Christ or the existence of God. Or maybe you imagine, like I have in the past, that you will have that moment where somebody says, are you willing and ready to die for your faith in Jesus Christ? And you stand and you say, I will be ready for that moment. And so call me in. But the reality is that many of us are not ready. And the reason is because we have not prepared. We have not, over a period of years, cultivated the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
See, what is likely to emerge from our hearts under pressure is whatever character we have developed over time. And for many of us, we have not invested the time and the trust in God and His Word day after day, week after week, in order to be ready for what we imagine those big moments to be. One of the questions that I always ask when I read the book of Acts is this, what was it that caused the early church to have such success so quickly? Why is it that they went from 12 guys, basically, who believed in Jesus to, within a period of a few years, the gospel had spread all across the Roman world. In some particular days, you see in the book of Acts, thousands of people on one day trust in Jesus Christ. 3,000, 4,000 people are trusting in Christ. What caused all of that? Now, we've talked about throughout the book of Acts, certainly that the power of God was behind the church's growth. The Spirit was moving. But there's something else that is not as obvious in the book of Acts, but was critical, and that is this. The character of their leadership drove their growth. That the men and women who were leading the early church were men and women who over a period of time had cultivated faith in God's promises. They had cultivated a mindset focused on the character of Jesus Christ, and they had saturated themselves in God's word so that when they reached a critical juncture in history where they were called upon to testify to the reality of the gospel, they were ready, not just with their lips, but the character that emerged under pressure was a character that had been shaped by their walk with the Lord. In most cases, shaped for years of walking with God. We're going to see an exemplary illustration of that character this morning in the person of Stephen. Stephen, of course, is the very first Christian martyr. Stephen is the very first Christian martyr. And what you see in Stephen is a man who, under pressure, his character validates the gospel. That when he is called upon to testify to Jesus Christ in this very big moment, what you see is that what comes out of his life, what comes out of his mouth, is the fact that he knows God deeply and trusts him. And we're going to look at that character of Stephen and see some of these critical qualities in his life. And I want each of us really to be asking this question, am I cultivating right now, day in, day out, even in the small trials of life, the character of Jesus Christ through trusting in him, through reading his word? What am I cultivating in my life when I face even small pressures, whether it's with my family or my spouse or at work, or in finances. What type of character emerges? When the character of Jesus emerges under pressure, that demonstrates and validates the reality of the gospel. We're going to look at the life of Stephen this morning, and we'll see that principle lived out in his life. Look at Acts chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned to the congregation of disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. 
and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. All right, so I want to set the stage for you just a little bit. What's going on is that as the church began to grow, they faced, as churches often do, some logistical issues and some relational issues that were connected to those. When the church would give an offering, a portion of that offering would go to feed widows because in that day and age, widows had a very difficult time supporting themselves financially. So they would give this money to the widows in the church. But there was a conflict between Greek-speaking Jewish widows and Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. They are from different cultures, and they are trying to come together under the banner of Jesus, but certain widows are complaining they are getting more than us. And this begins to swallow some of the time of the apostles, and so they designate these seven men, Stephen is among them, these seven men, their role partly is to assist in that financial distribution to make sure it's fair. But what you see is that these are guys who are not just serving in the area of money, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with wisdom. And what you notice about Stephen is he is singled out in this list as a man who is full of faith. And I love that uh, Stephen in particular at the head of the list, it says he is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. All of them were full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is singled out that he is a man filled with faith. What does that mean? I think what it means is this. Stephen is a guy who rests his life on the promises of God. Stephen is a man who orients his whole worldview around the reality that God can be trusted, that when God makes a promise, he keeps those promises. And you'll see this emerge in Stephen's speech in chapter 7. When he's under pressure, It's interesting what Stephen does is he goes back and he rehearses the promises of God to the nation of Israel through history. He begins with Abraham and he moves to Joseph and the other patriarchs and he moves to Moses and he moves to the prophets and he says, God has made us promises. And even as Stephen is about to die, And he will not in this life experience the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Even though he knows that, he trusts that he is a part of God's story, and God always keeps his promises. And so Stephen lives with his faith focused on God. Now, I want to be clear here. We often think about faith as sort of this inner disposition that just gives us a positive spirit to be able to do whatever we want to do, and that's the popular view of faith. In fact, uh, some of you may have seen the Lego movie that came out last year, and uh, if you haven't, let me tell you, there is a a poster in the Lego movie that it's a very significant plot device that comes up over and over again throughout the Lego movie. Here it is. It is a picture of a cat jumping in the air, and he says, believe, right? And that becomes a real central focus of this movie. If you just believe hard enough, you can do anything. You can fix any problem. But as I look at this poster, here's the question I have. What is the kitten believing in? Uh, he's, maybe he's believing in himself that he can fly. If that's the case, he is just sorely mistaken, all right? Why? Because look at him. There's nothing underneath him. He is jumping as high as he can. He's stretching out. He believes as soon as they took this picture, you know what happened to that little guy? 
he fell to the ground. You can believe all you want that a cat can fly, but it's not going to fly. Why? Because the amount of his faith is not what matters, and Stephen understands that. You know what matters? The object. Stephen understands that his faith in God is a faith upon an object that is rock solid, just as we sang, that he is our rock. Stephen understood that to be full of faith means I focus my mind and heart on the promises of God. As Hebrews 11 says, right, those who come to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And Stephen understands that reward may not come now. That reward may come in eternity when I meet my Savior. But that I can walk in trust. Now the question is, how does he cultivate that type of faith so that under pressure... That's what emerges. Here's what I think. Stephen is a man who had filled his mind with God's promises. You say, I want to be a person who trusts God's promises. Do you know God's promises? Do you fill your mind and your heart with the promises of God in Scripture? Do you think about passages like Matthew 28 where Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, as you share the gospel, as you make disciples. Do you regularly meditate on passages like Romans chapter 8 that says nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you meditate on passages of Scripture in the midst of grief like 1 Thessalonians 4 that talk about the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead and say God has promised that because Jesus rose, his people will rise so not even death can conquer God's people. See, Stephen is filled with faith because he's focused on the promises of God. Under pressure, does that faith emerge from our hearts that we trust in the God who made us and in the God who has shepherded his people throughout history? Stephen is full of faith. Second thing we see in Stephen's life is that he is also full of grace and power. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now what we see with Stephen is right in the middle of this attack, right in the middle of these accusations, it says he is filled with two characteristics that the scripture puts together here, grace and power. Now, it's interesting, because of his faith in God's promises, he responds with character that is consistent with who God is and who Jesus is. Now, grace and power is an interesting combo, though. Uh, We don't always think of those things going together, do we? Uh, When we think of power, what do we think of? Well, I know I've got a five-year-old son. I think of superheroes when I think of power. Uh, So maybe you think of Batman, right? Think about Batman. He is wealthy. 
He is strong. He always wins. He always enforces justice. When you think of Batman, you do not typically think of grace, though, do you? Uh, You never see Batman corner the Joker, and in that moment when he can take his justice, he never says something like, I forgive you, right? Give me a hug. Let's go get coffee. He never does that because he is all about power and all about justice, but not about grace. Uh, When you think of grace, what do you think about? Well, maybe you think about ballerinas. They are graceful or piano players, or you think about sweet old ladies who let you cut them off in traffic so you can get where you're going because you know it's more important than where she's going, right? And she waves and says, thank you, right? And you move on. That's what you think about when you think of grace, isn't it? You think about weakness, But the reality is, I actually read one commenter who said, Stephen has this combination of sweetness and strength in one person. You know who else is like that? Jesus. How does John describe Jesus? Full of what? Grace and truth. And look at what emerges from Stephen's character in the midst of this persecution, that Stephen is powerful in his speech. In fact, he's so powerful, they can't refute what he says. They finally go, you know what? We cannot cope with what Stephen is saying, so let's just make some stuff up about what he said and try to get him killed. He's that powerful, and even in the midst of persecution and facing death, he boldly testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ, but he's also gracious in the fact that in his final moment, you know what he asks for? He asks God to forgive those who are putting him to death. See, grace is that ability not only to forgive, but also to lavish love on those who don't deserve it, just as God in Jesus Christ has done for us. So he has this combination of both grace and power because he has been meditating upon and focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. And so Stephen's power is not anger, Right? Most of us, when we're under pressure, how do we respond? Well, we respond in one of two ways, don't we? We respond with what we think is power, but is really anger and bitterness. I will take my justice. I will have my revenge. And we get angry. So when someone challenges our belief in Jesus, when somebody challenges the place of Christians and culture, we feel attacked and we lash back. Or we respond with what we perceive to be grace, but is actually weakness, right? We withdraw like a wallflower and we say nothing. But Stephen does neither. Because he's full of the Holy Spirit, he can stand up and with boldness and power, he speaks the truth. And the same man forgives and loves his persecutors. How can he do that? Again, because under pressure it emerges that this is a man who knows his Savior. And he knows that in God's character, grace and power exist side by side with no contradiction. What kind of character emerges in us in the midst of pressure, in the midst of trial, even small trials? After the first service, a mom said to me, you know, this is so relevant, not in the fact that I anticipate becoming a martyr for my faith, but just in the fact that I face pressure, a lot of pressure every day in the way that I respond to my kids when my kids are being out of control or unkind or not listening to me. What emerges in your character? even in those small moments. That is what is likely to emerge in the big moments that we imagine. And Stephen has this combination of grace and power. And then as we continue through the story, we see that his faith in God, this grace and power, comes out in his speech. And his speech is effective largely because not only is he full of faith, not only is he full of grace and power, but he's also saturated 
in the Word of God. He's saturated in Scripture. Uh, I wish I had time to read all of chapter 7 for you this morning, um, but I will summarize it for you. Chapter 7 is actually the longest speech in the book of Acts. There are a lot of speeches in the book of Acts. Paul makes speeches. Peter makes speeches. Stephen, obviously, this is his only one. It's the longest one. And let me tell you what what happened. Stephen has been accused of uh, blaspheming against the law and against Moses. Uh, The accusation is this, that Stephen is saying, no longer do we need to worship God in this temple, but we worship God through the power of the Spirit. It's very similar to what Jesus had said to the woman at the well, that there will come a day when you will not worship in this place or on this mountain, but you will worship God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus faced the same accusation that he was going to tear down the temple. The religious leaders who drew their livelihood from the temple were threatened by the Christian message because the Christian message was ultimately that in Jesus Christ, we don't need a physical temple because we are the temple. And so Stephen is facing this accusation, and and what he does in chapter 7 is this masterful speech in which he goes back to Abraham, and then he moves to Joseph, and he moves to Moses, and he moves to the prophets, and he has two points. The first is this. God has never needed a physical location to work. Look at what he did with Abraham. When did God call Abraham? Where was Abraham? In the temple? Absolutely not. Abraham wasn't even in Israel. He was in Mesopotamia, and God called him and led him toward this land. Look at Joseph and the patriarchs. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He finds his way to Egypt. Did God abandon him in Egypt? Absolutely not. God is there. God moves through Joseph. God speaks to Joseph even in Egypt. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, did God abandon them in the wilderness when the tabernacle was mobile and they had to move it from place to place and they had no temple? Absolutely not. God always, always is moving. God doesn't need a physical location. So that's why toward the end of chapter 7, Stephen can say in verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord. Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? In other words, I don't need you to build me a house. I own the whole place, right? And so Stephen goes back to the word of God and he says, God is always speaking through people everywhere. He doesn't need a temple. The other point he makes in his sermon is this, as God is speaking, God keeps sending to his nation people who are saying, look, there's coming a Messiah. There's coming a righteous one, a prophet who is going to tell you who God is. And through him, God's message will go out and the spirit of God will dwell in God's people. So there's no more need for a temple. But you know what you keep doing with the messengers of the Messiah? You know what you keep doing? You keep killing them. You keep putting them to death. You keep rejecting them. And so God is always speaking and you are always rejecting him so that at the end of his speech, he can say, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Watch what, Pete, or what Stephen does here, okay? He turns the accusation around and he says this, you have accused me of blaspheming against the law. You are the ones who disobey the law because you have not listened to what God 
has said. And here's my point. How can Stephen do this so effectively? How does he know the word of God better than the religious leaders? Because Stephen has spent his life hearing it, studying it, and listening to what God has said. So that in that moment of persecution, it's astounding the level of detail about God's word that he can recall from memory. There is no Google for him to go find the references he needs. It's all here, and it's all here. If you and I are put in a pressure situation that depended upon our knowledge of the Word of God, how would we do? If you face that big moment and someone says, can you tell me why I should believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, where in Scripture would you go? Somebody says, how do you know from Scripture that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again, where in Scripture would you go? Defend eternal security, where in Scripture would you go? Have you saturated your heart and mind in Scripture? All right, those of you who are students know that if you show up for a test having not ever studied the material, the odds that you will miraculously understand the material are slim to none, right? We do not know what we have not spent time in. I was reminded this week of when I was in seminary, and one of the things that I did to make a little bit of extra money to pay for school was I tutored high school students. And uh, when I joined on with the tutoring company, the owner of the tutoring company said, okay, what subjects can you teach? And I said, I was an engineering major, so really anything science or math I ought to be able to handle. And he started asking me about specific subjects. Uh, This type of math, sure. Can you handle physics? Sure. I could do high school physics. And he said, what about chemistry? And I had this little moment in my head where I thought, uh, probably not, but what came out of my mouth was sure, right? Because I didn't want to lose a job. So I said, okay, yeah, I could handle chemistry. And and once you say it, you know, it's out there. You can't pull it back in without losing face. And it, it felt really good to say it until I showed up at the first actual tutoring appointment where I was supposed to help this kid through chemistry. And I walked in and he shows me this chemical reaction and he says, I need to balance this and I don't understand how. Do you know how to do this? And I looked at it and I thought, Absolutely, I have no idea how to do this problem, right? I haven't looked at it in years. I was all of a sudden remembering, also, I was never good at chemistry to begin with. Uh, but here's what I did. I, I, I'll admit, I kind of lied to him. I said, sure, I can do this, but why don't we uh, read your textbook together right now so the two of us can make sure you understand how to do this problem, okay? (laughs) So uh, that's what we did. We spent the next hour reading through the book because I was not prepared because I had not studied it or thought about it before I walked into the room. And I was just relying, I guess, on what was in my head, which on that subject was nothing, right? And the reality is if you and I are relying on being able to call the scripture to mind in a moment of pressure, when we do not read it, we do not study it, we do not know it, It's not going to happen. Stephen is saturated in Scripture. And yes, that is a chemistry pun on purpose, right? He is filled with the Scripture. And that's how he knows the promises of God. That's how he knows the character of God, because he's invested time in it. Have you and I done the same? Again, so that under that pressure situation, what emerges is God's Word and the character of Jesus Christ. And all of this time in the Word of God leads Stephen then to this deep devotion to Jesus Christ himself. So that what comes out of him in this moment of pain is not anger, 
is not vengeance, is not fear, but love for Jesus first and foremost. Look at verses 54 to 60 of chapter 7. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Okay, so as they begin to stone him, it's interesting. I've had some bad reactions to sermons in my life. I've had people fall asleep. I've had people laugh at me rather than with me. I've had people even argue with me. I've never had anything like this happen. Uh, These people turn into animals. They gnash their teeth. They're so angry. They rush him and they grab him. They begin to throw rocks at him and they drag him out of town and they start to stone him to death. But what's remarkable is not their response, but Stephen's. As they begin to stone him to death, his eyes go up to the heavens and he fixes his eyes on Jesus. And Jesus shows up. And Stephen says, I see him. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. The words that Stephen uses, and this this is amazing to me, that even the words he uses in this moment are drawn from Scripture, from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He goes back to the concept of this messianic psalm that he's probably heard all of his life, and he realizes it is the Messiah, the Son of God, at the right hand of God. But notice there's one difference between what he says in the psalm, and that is in the psalm, the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. In Stephen's vision, he's standing up. And why is he standing? The most likely reason that Jesus is standing is this, that in a court of law, in a, before a council like Stephen is, You would call witnesses to testify on your behalf. And unlike our courts of law, the witnesses would not sit down next to the judge. They actually would stand up when it was their turn to testify, and they would give vindicating testimony on your behalf. And Stephen looks up, and here is Jesus, not sitting, but he actually has stood up now next to God in the throne room of God, and he says, I vindicate this man because he's right in focusing on me. And Stephen looks up, and in the midst of being stoned, he never takes his eyes off of his Savior because he loves him deeply, and Jesus loves him back. And Stephen knows that the promises of God are true, even in the midst of this brutally awful moment from a physical perspective. And as Hebrews 12 is going to say many years later, he fixes his eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of his faith. And he sets aside the suffering of now for the joy set before him. And he endures this trial well. You see the kind of man that Stephen is. He is a man that in the face of pain and in the face of pressure, he doesn't wilt, he doesn't fight back, but he trusts in the rock-solid ground of God's promises. And the reason is because day 
after day, probably before he even knew the name of Jesus, Peter was a man who emphasized in his life knowing God's character, knowing God's word, so that when Jesus arrived, he was ready to receive him and he was ready to speak the truth. But this doesn't happen overnight. It was a lifetime process for this man of coming to know Jesus so that he couldn't only stand up and say, I believe in Jesus, but he could boldly defend his faith with winsomeness and power. And what's great is in the following verses, we see the results of Stephen's testimony. In chapter 8, there's two results that emerge from Stephen's testimony. First of all, the persecution itself increases. Uh, Saul who becomes a a major figure later in the book of Acts. Saul goes house to house now, and he begins to drag people out, and he begins to have them imprisoned or put them to death. And what happens is the Christians begin to spread. They run away from Jerusalem because Saul is so enraged by Stephen's speech that he intensifies the persecution. People begin to flee. But the second thing that you see that happens in chapter four is as they begin to flee, the gospel actually spreads. These people leave Jerusalem and they go all over the ancient world and they begin to share the gospel. And in fact, the next time we will see Saul in the book of Acts, he's headed to Damascus to try to get some Christians out of Damascus and drag them back to Jerusalem because they are starting to share the gospel in Damascus and people in Damascus are starting to believe. And all over the world, as a result of Stephen's testimony for the gospel, people are starting to believe. And in fact, this speech has such an impact on Saul that later in the book, once we know him as Paul, after he believes in Jesus, when he stands before the Jewish council, he mentions Stephen. And he says, I was standing there approving of what they did, but God got a hold of me when I went to Damascus. And somebody pointed out to me this morning, in fact, that the book of Romans contains many similarities to Stephen's speech here, and it does, particularly chapters 9 through 11. The character that emerges from Stephen's life in this moment of pressure has a profound impact on the growth of the early church. So the question to ask this morning is this. When you and I are under pressure, does our character demonstrate the reality of the gospel? Maybe that you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus for eternal life. And the message this morning that I would communicate to you is simply this, that uh, if you struggle to have patience and grace and you struggle to feel that your life has power or that you are connected to God, maybe because you don't know him. And the good news is that all of your sin, all of those areas in which you disobey God, in which you fall short, Jesus died for your sin and he rose again. And everybody who believes in him is given the free gift of eternal life, but also the gift of the Spirit to empower their life to serve him. Uh, If you do know him this morning, uh, the question that I want to pose is this. What kind of character are you cultivating? What is one step that you need to take in your life in order to cultivate the character of Jesus Christ. Maybe it involves getting up just a few minutes earlier in the morning to be saturated in the Word of God. Or memorizing passages like Romans 8, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, memorizing the promises of God and reciting them to yourself as you go throughout your day. Or asking God for the ability to trust Him. What kind of character are you and I cultivating? We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and as the men 
get the elements and prepare to come forward. I want us, as we celebrate communion, to focus first and foremost on the character of Jesus Christ, because that's what we see Stephen doing, is he knows Jesus, and he knows his character. And the character of Jesus Christ that we celebrate when we celebrate communion is that of the Son of God who was willing to give his life for us. And he gave his life not out of weakness, but out of grace. And he lived his life not in anger or revenge, but in the power of God. And so we look at the character of Jesus, full of grace and truth, and we thank him for what he did at the cross, and we praise him that he rose again. And we seek to emulate his character, not so we can be better than others, but because that is how the gospel of Jesus Christ will be made effective and evident in our lives. So if the men would please come forward, we'll spend some time thinking about God's word as we prepare to take communion. First Corinthians 11, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you didn't spare even your own son for us, but gave him so that we could have life eternally and we could have life through your spirit even now. I pray that we would continue to focus on, meditate on, and know deeply the character of Jesus so that like Stephen, we can fall deeper in love with your son so that we can emulate and reflect the character of Jesus Christ in our world for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.